Haikus of a Trapped Adult On my way to work, I pretend I'm not going. And I'm Beyonce. I drive like I live, scared of what I can't see yet, and a little stoned. I'm tired of the news. The election can suck it. What happened to hope? I'd give anything to have a personal chat with sweet baby James. To see her again is the only thing I want. But this too shall pass. I am deep in love but still worry he will leave. History proves it. I should quit Facebook. So exhausted with Facebook. Did you see my post? Work conversation. Please look at the job log first. But can't you just look? When your mom dies young, Your life is only half yours, half to live for her. Ghosts under the bed, I feed them with all my angst. You think they'd be full. He tells me daily that I'm beautiful, but won't accept it back. Dad gets kidney stones while we all sit and worry. Bodies are tricky. My grief can be weird, crying at Starbucks coffee. Thought I saw her face. I often feel wrong, guilty of something maybe. Why do I do that? Do you think Carol, when writing tapestry down, ever thought she sucked? Am I a writer? Does it make a difference? Who decides these things? Why don't you use it? You're fucking turn signal, bitch. You're an idiot. On my way back home, I pretend I'm not upset. I'm not Beyonce. Welcome back to the Townies Podcast, where we present original stories and a glimpse into the creative lives of the real people who wrote them. As always, I'm your host, Kim Maxwell, and the stories you're about to hear were developed in my writing and performance workshop in Ventura County, California. This week, our tidbit was written and performed by the artist formerly known as Katie Newcomer, now known as Katie Newbaum. She also just so happens to be our first guest on the podcast this week. Hello, Miss Katie. Hi. You know, I think a number of our listeners might just recognize you from some of our other episodes last season. If they know what's good for them. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's always best to open with a threat, don't you? We are going to hear another one of your pieces in a little bit, and I am going to ask you some questions about that. But right now, I would love to talk to you about these amazing haikus. (laughs) Okie (laughs) dokie. You actually wrote them in class and performed them at Kim Maxwell Studio in July 2016. Yeah. What is it like to revisit this material and have those words pass over your lips again. It's very fascinating. I think it's like a trip down memory lane in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes when I go back and look at the pieces that I've written, it feels like someone else wrote them (laughs) because it's such an out-of-body experience, you Mm -hmm. know? And I remember writing those haikus and where I was, you know, when I was writing them. And it is very cool to see the growth since then. And um, 
And I'm proud of myself at that time Mm -hmm. for being as honest as I was because I think that was a big part of the process. It was, hugely. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've also, if I remember correctly, you conceived the haikus on your outrageously long commute from home to work and then from work all the way to class. Yeah. Yeah? How did they... How did they arrive? How did they fall from the storytelling gods? You know, it's weird. I remember I remember this one being one of the first experiences I had where, like, the idea just dropped into my head, mm-hmm. um, which hadn't happened yet, but happened again later w- w- within the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, I was driving to work, and I had this idea about pretending like I wasn't going. <laughs> And listening to Beyonce and, like, trying to gather the strength from Beyonce, which I talk about a lot in my pieces. (laughs) Um, And then, I don't know why, but, like, the curiosity fairy came to me and said, what about haikus, you know? And I just started writing them at work. Um, But on your break, though? Uh, Sure. (laughs) (laughs) At that time, that that was not a very hard job, so I could... I could multitask, um, <laughs> but uh, and I didn't like it very much, as you can tell from the haikus. Uh, and then it sort of just kind of all came out in one or two times. It wasn't that uh, it wasn't that long of a process with the drafts with that one. Have you always wanted to be a writer? And when did it start for you? You know, I really haven't. I I always wanted to be an actress, um, and I grew up in a theater family, mm-hmm. and my mom wrote, and I always thought that that was like some magical thing that I didn't know how to do. I really did. I didn't, I don't know how to like write plays or write an episode of something, so I didn't know how to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I really got caught with the bug when I went to Ojai Playwrights Conference and Mm -hmm. I saw one of your teen shows and I just was really amazed by the bravery and I Mm -hmm. thought if that is like writing maybe I can do that (laughs) you know what I mean like maybe I can and um and then I got into class and then I think I proved to myself time and time again that I could do it and then I started to believe it a few times in I think even in the writing of the haikus, I still wasn't quite sure. Mm-hmm. But um, but now it's something that is the only time I'm not watching myself mm. is when I'm writing. And when I am really honest with myself is when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. So this piece, and actually this whole episode uh, mm-hmm. today, is about growing up, uh, aging, adulting. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like one yet? Like an adult? Um, sure. <laughs> I I don't know. I think I think we all don't feel like one. You know, mm-hmm. I think that that's what I've started to uncover by being honest with myself about it. Is that like my dad, who's almost sixty, doesn't feel like an adult all the time. You know, mm-hmm. and so I think taking away this magical label of it, of what it means or what have you. I think I'm less into that now and more into, like, what makes me proud of myself and what makes me feel like I'm growing. Um, So I think um, adulting is super hard, Mm -hmm. and I think it's important to acknowledge when it's hard and to reach out to your community when it's hard. Mm -hmm. And also to let it be whatever that means for you, because adulting is different for everybody. (laughs) different levels of achievement, you know what I mean? (laughs) Unlocked. I know exactly what you mean, (laughs) Katie Newbaum. With a mixed bag of seeds, I came to the soil. I needed to see something grow. I was skeptical. Skeptical of growth, skeptical of hope, skeptical of God. I came to the soil because I was questioning, because my mother died, because I wanted a glimpse. With shaky hope and determined doubt, I came to the soil. I needed to see something grow. I was unsure, 
Unsure if the green bushels were weeds. Unsure if I watered enough. Unsure if the heat would kill them. But then, one day, orange. <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> My flower fence took root. They've been going strong for three months. They lean towards the sun in the afternoons. They like coffee grounds and eggshells. They delight me with the daily experience of being wrong. I came to the soil skeptical, and I saw my mother in a butterfly. I came to the soil for a glimpse and self-planted some God. I came to the soil to see and caught myself in the reflection. Soil Song was written and performed by Katie Newbaum in December 2016. We've heard a number of stories and poems from you over the course of the podcast. Why poetry? What does poetry do for you or for your process? Mm. You know, I think especially the way this piece came out, it's the way that sometimes the words just come out for me um, in a non-linear paragraph kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think working with you, you gave me a lot of permission to just let that be what it was and calling it poetry. And I think I was looking for a lot of permission to call it that. Mm -hmm. um, I think another label that we kind of want, if it's writer or poet, you know, you kind of want to make sure that you are, you, you meet the criteria. Um, and I think what I learned by letting pieces like Soil Song come out mm -hmm. is that it is already, you know, it already is poetry. Um, and I, so I think it just came out that way this time. Hmm. So the she and her that you talk about in both of your pieces, that's your mom. Yes. That loss at such a young age had a tremendous impact on you. Mm -hmm. How does it affect your artistic life, your work? I mean, it's um, super vibrant in my mm -hmm. work and in my artistic life. And I think even when I try to write pieces that are not about that, it comes, I mean, which is totally this piece. Like, mm -hmm. I try to not write about her <laughs> for the love of God, you know? <laughs> Um, because I felt like that's all I ever did. Mm -hmm. um, but that's because that's what I have to write, you know? And mm -hmm. I think um, you have to write it before you can, like, move on or or even accept that you're not going to move on from mm -hmm. something like that. Um, so I think it really impacts my artistic life in a big way, especially because my mom was a writer. Mm -hmm. And I think it's sort of like something that got introduced to me after she was gone, but she's still very much in. Yeah. And I think that that is like a warm blanket. Well, how has writing about it impacted your grieving process? Mm. I mean, it has been my grieving process in a mm. lot of ways. I mean, when I came to class, she had already been gone, I don't know, like five years or six years, maybe. And I felt like, I had done some grieving definitely with it, but only when it came to like sitting with a pen and paper did it really start to be able to come out. And I think it was able to come out because I had had some time mm -hmm. um, to get over the initial upheavals mm -hmm. and was able to put words to it and start to connect to it and to grieve in a community um, is a very different than grieving on your own. And mm -hmm. I think before I gr I grieved on my own and with my family, but in class I was able to share it with people that didn't even really know me. And mm -hmm. for whatever reason, that is so freeing and liberating to just let yourself own your story mm -hmm. and what it is you have to say about it. Hmm. Since we have two of your pieces side by side in this episode, let's maybe compare the process of writing the two different pieces. Yeah. Well, I think um, the haikus, you know, sort of were there, mm -hmm. you know, and the soil song piece started as a rogue free write mm -hmm. 
Um, and I was actually looking back over it today as I was packing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, and I realized that I wrote that it was like a week or two after the anniversary of my mom's birthday. Mm. And the rogue free write that I had wor- written earlier in that same class was kind of about that. Mm-hmm. And this talking about the flowers was almost like a, let me talk about something else. <laughs> and then mm. it just was about how the flowers were like a surprise. Mm-hmm. They were this like opportunity for me to come at something really vulnerable, um, almost like I did with writing and not know how it was going to turn out and mm-hmm. kind of need it to do something I need it to turn out but I have no idea how it's going to and so I just started with putting some seeds in some soil and doing the best that I could and that's really what writing was like too you know Mm -hmm. like I just put pen to paper and did the best I could and look what came Mm -hmm. so I think that that metaphor was happening um, whether I was aware of it or not you know I also want to just go back and say a, a, a rogue free write right. just means that you were given a prompt in class like we do on the podcast, mm-hmm. but you had a burning desire to write something else, and so you did. Yes. And that's called going rogue. Yes. One of um, my favorite things to do. <laughs> I love that about you, you loose cannon. <laughs> We talk about the wall a lot. Mm. You know, that big old breakdown of, wow, I'm a huge piece of shit. (laughs) And it comes right before the breakthrough. Yeah. How do you deal with your self-doubt and the blocks so that you can keep your pen moving? Yes. Um, It's a big one. It is a big one. I find myself reeling with the wall in so many places in my life because Mm -hmm. I think before I'm about to do anything big I have to have like a really big conversation with my Mm -hmm. self-doubt and I think that the writing process really got me used to that it Mm -hmm. got me like to be able to have a conversation with it versus be like what's happening to me why am I freaking out Mm -hmm. Um, so this sort of wall this um, place that I come to a lot of not being unsure of myself Now that I've worked with it in the creative process a lot and I've built that muscle, it gets a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to write about it a lot of the time. I have Mm -hmm. to write it out before, like I have to, I've noticed I have to write out a lot of stuff before the thing I want to write comes. Mm -hmm. And if I don't write it out, the stuff that I want to get to won't come. Mm -hmm. I have to go through. I can't go around. So I think that's a, a big piece of it is being able to engage with it. Mm-hmm. And also something that you've always said is that it's not um, permanent mm-hmm. It's and it's not always accurate, right? Mm-hmm. So just knowing that the voices are there doesn't mean that they're saying anything that's true mm-hmm. and it's a temporary situation. Mm-hmm. And I think if I can keep with those thoughts and breathing, <laughs> I do okay. <laughs> and keep writing, you know? Just keep breathing. Yeah. Just keep writing. So... Knowing that you are about to leave for Washington State mm. for a brand new shiny job. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thank We're you. All so so much. excited for you. And I'm also gonna miss you so much. Amen. Because it's 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 really ultimately in the end, it's about me, Katie. It's so true. Why are you leaving me? <laughs> I am going to totally miss you buckets, though. I'm gonna miss you so many buckets. Um, can I ask you then, have you dealt with the wall in relation to this big decision about taking this job and Mm -hmm. pulling up roots and moving to another state. It's funny that you ask that. (laughs) Is it really funny, though? um, Because I'm kind of, like, right in it right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think yesterday it was so funny. Yesterday I was like, why am I so tired? Like, like my body was, like, just wanting to sit in one spot and not do things, and I don't really, like— have that availability right now Mm -hmm. but then I thought like maybe I should listen maybe I should see what else might be going on like why do I want to shut down right now Mm -hmm. um and it's the wall you know Mm -hmm. what I mean it's that thing of like me recognizing what anxiety looks like for me and Mm -hmm. sometimes it looks like this sometimes it looks like something else and Saying it out loud, mm. you know, to somebody else that it's happening is a big piece of it for me, reaching out. Mm. 
And, um, you know, and just acknowledging that it's totally okay that I'm freaking out because it is a really big thing that I'm about to go do. And mm-hmm. so the freak out should totally be a part of the process mm-hmm. um, and is welcome and like is okay to be a part of what's happening because if it wasn't going on, then maybe something wouldn't be quite right about it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It just means that I'm about to take risk and it means that I'm being brave. And so that's, if I can frame it that way, mm-hmm. it's better. Well, then let's let's close this uh, part of the podcast with talking about risk. Okay. Just approach it. Do you have any words of wisdom mm. for others who are thinking about making a big decision or a big move or possibly taking that terrifying leap slash risk into putting your words out into the world? Do it. That's my words of wisdom. Do it. Um, I think if you're thinking about it and you're like kind of wanting to do it, you already are like wanting to do it anyway. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And I think so. I think part of it is doing it with that fear in tow. You Mm -hmm. know, it's like feel the fear and do it anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just better on the other side. So you have to like, even when it's tough, you know, you have to go through. Um, And I think. Um, what you say a lot is excellence lies outside of what you already know how to do. And so I think getting honest about what you want and um, what your dreams are and being daring enough and risky enough to to dream, because I think that that's really scary stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has been for me. So I think uh, feeling all of that, acknowledging it, saying it's okay, and then doing it anyway. Mm. That's what I would say. Thank you for your haikus. Thank you. Thank you for your poetry. Thank you for your stories. Oh, Miss Katie, I love you, and I'm going to miss you every single day. Ditto, my love. Ditto, Mm -hmm. ditto, ditto. Hi, this is Grace Fellows from Taos. I'm here to say a little something about change true happiness. So I wrote this song when I was in Spain with my brother in the summer of 2015, Um, We were staying in this apartment where you had to actually open the door from the inside with a key. So he took the key and I ended up getting locked in the house. And it was sort of frightening, like what if there was a fire or something. But um, so I ended up sort of painstakingly writing this song with very strong feelings. Um, It ended up actually getting written quite fast. And I'm really happy with how the recording and stuff turned out. So I hope you enjoy and I'm excited to share it with everyone.
Change, True Happiness by Taos from their album, Change. Coming up... I'm a samurai of the past, wheeling notebooks and staplers, and I can brandish a mean two-hole punch. (laughs) I also have a disturbing habit of wasting my time. (laughs) Doug Knott, when the Townies podcast continues... Hey Townies, it's your producer Lily Brown here coming at you live. Um, Please join us this summer in Monte Castello di Vibio, which is in Umbria, Italy. We're doing our first Townies workshop abroad. I have been brushing up on my Italian. Io sono una mela. I am an apple. You're going to use that often. (laughs) È un uccello. It is a bird. La mosca è nel bicchiere. The fly is in the glass. (laughs) I hope you'll join us. It's going to be a blast. We're going to be doing two weeks of writing and performance workshop stuff, drinking wine, eating all the food, and it's going to be super fun. Uh, We're going to do a performance in a 400-year-old recently restored opera house, June 30th to July 15th. Learn more information at kimmaxwellstudio.com slash retreats. Io ho una fragola. <laughs> I have a strawberry. Vacation, <laughs> because I was I've just well, I, I to get know. away from the city sure. for a couple days, so I just okay. handed off my duties to my mom. Okay. Um, so, come on, our shoes go off here at the door. All right. That is Ken Eros, our sound engineer and mixer and producer. Hi, and I think you know Lily Hi. Brown, who Hello. is our other producer. Oh, and my daughter. Well, I thought I'd be able to pass Brown Street. I, said, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. Nice to meet you. Our last guest today is the wonderful and talented Doug Knott. Hello. So great to have you here in the studio, Doug. Thanks for coming. Well, I enjoy those adjectives, and it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> You know me. I'm 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 a little adjective heavy. Um, oh, I know. In, in my personal they're, expression, they're they're bounteous adjectives. <laughs> so you have been at this writing and performance thing for a long time. Why? What compels you, Doug? Not. Well, okay, <laughs> food and drink, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I um, I I was a lawyer. In ancestral days, I've been around a while, and uh, then I it started leaking out of me the creative world, and I started playing rock and roll, 
And then I started doing stuff in the 80s. I moved to L.A. Mm -hmm. And by stuff, I mean uh, performance, spoken word, things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I consider myself a poet and am such. But uh, it went uh, because I lived in L.A. and Hollywood, et cetera. But mm -hmm. uh, no, I did all over town. I did used to do two gigs a week, and we had a, a group, and I had a show at a club called the Lassa Club that I mm -hmm. included some really good spoken word people as well as the music people. Mm -hmm. So, being as this is sort of where we are, when did it, when did this passion start for you? Like how this desire to express yourself, either through spoken word or poetry. How young were you when it first started to surface? Well, it was young, but I had a ability. Uh, to, I was good at school, okay? I, I copped to that. And I consider myself uh, kind of a non-creator, meaning mm -hmm. I was a pretty successful student. I went to law school, all that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it started, I said leaking before. It started, I started playing guitar in my 20s. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I started writing songs a la Bob Dylan and mm -hmm. other, uh, other uh, elements. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I just uh, found myself becoming overwhelmingly... Uh, Whatever it was, I switched from uh, right brain to left brain, or maybe mm -hmm. it's the other way around. The one where you, <laughs> you can't you can't think, but you kind of you kind of you kind of feel things. <laughs> I went over to that side, and um, I was lucky enough to have the law degree. So when I got to Berkeley and all that in the '70s, I was uh, able to make a living. And uh, I didn't really start uh, doing performing and reading writing until I got to LA in the '80s. Oh, wow. So there was a, a, a long period of time from when you were yeah. writing and expressing yourself on the page. I was actually inhibited in a way because I considered myself a lawyer, you know, I mean, or mm -hmm. I was on that track or I, I actually consider myself a, a strange uh, misshapen uh, mental blob, but I, <laughs> I, I, I could do the school, except that my last year in law school, I didn't even bother to study. I somehow got through, right? Mm -hmm. But I knew I wasn't really interested, and mm -hmm. I went to trial practice, and I wasn't really interested. So, so how, how many years was it between when you started expressing yourself and then when it became public? Is that about 20 years? Uh, well, I started expressing really a little bit poetry in Marin and stuff, but mm -hmm. I started doing readings, and I didn't uh, – that's optional as a poet because poetry is a written art, and, mm -hmm. an, and as another form is a spoken word art. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, <clears throat> I started when I went to L.A. because I met folks, and it's full of actors and kind of hot stuff, you know, that well, I enjoyed. tell me in the 80s, who was hot stuff? Who has influenced you artistically? Well, I had uh, – I guess uh, I used to hang with as best I could with Allen Ginsberg when he came to town and stuff mm -hmm. like that. I'm talking a big name there. Mm -hmm. But, no, I, I, I met a lot of uh, Hollywood people that on the fringe level uh, I could relate to, and I hit all the scenes, so to speak. That was a mm -hmm. fun thing I liked to do, like mm -hmm. the clubs that opened at 2 in the morning and all that. And uh, I ended up meeting a lot of uh, – rockers, and I decided I'd start a show. This is without really kind of any ambition because it was an art world, non-commercial thing, really. But the era was the punk, post-punk era. So mm -hmm. even though I'm kind of a 60s guy, uh, when I came awake artistically, it was the 80s. <laughs> so uh, I darkened my mood, which was fairly easy. <laughs> no, I'd lived in Marin County, but I was never laid back or mm -hmm. mellow. So when I hit the L.A. scene, it was uh, pretty compatible. Sitting on the plane from Albuquerque the day after Thanksgiving is a combination of looking off a balcony and huddling inside a big culvert. Submerged, except for my mind. Plenty of extra seats to put my legs on. Nothing I can do but sit here with that little reading light beaming down on my head and dark space all around this big steel torpedo filled with two-legged, short-breathed animals like me suspended in a long instant of velocity. I'm a bigger place than I thought, and also suspended. Back in Miner's Oaks, I'll soon be in my power think chair in the living room of our house. Vintage 1954. Myself, I'm vintage 1943. A good year for war. And in that house, I inhabit my power think chair. 
It's a white faux leather, three-jointed, modern mechanical wonder. My wife got me to recover from knee surgery, but now I swivel it around like a lighthouse in a corner that's all mine, which is a heaven for hard copy. Books and files to my right, the computer on the left. I'm a samurai of the past, wheeling notebooks and staplers, and I can brandish a mean two-hole punch. <laughs> I also have a disturbing habit of wasting my time. <laughs> A.D. to D.D. rules. Hmm, I just pulled some old notes back out of the trash. Maybe they're still good. I collect fragments of papers and half-thought memories and dangle the whole bunch like fragrant bananas in front of my nose. It all comes back. The 50s. Fedoras. Overcoats, neckties, and the American way. The most popular TV show was I Led Three Lives, where secret agent Herb Philbrick roots out communist moles for the FBI and J. Edgar. Now, I consider that show right-wing McCarthyist horse feathers, but then it was standard fare, like Dragnet or a hamburger and fries. In the 50s, in my town, which is far below Mason-Dixon, racial segregation was in full force. A big sign inside the city bus said, colored people seat from the rear. White people lived in our part of town. Then <clears throat> the black people you saw in daytime disappeared at night to mysterious lands on the other side of Georgia Avenue. Lunch counters and the F.W. Woolworth department store bathrooms were separated. Only two sexes were recognized. The rest were just whispered about. There was lots of booze and cigarettes. In cigarette ads on black and white TV, actors in long white coats said, three out of four doctors recommend cools. <laughs> Must have been the menthol. <laughs> Executive offices had a stocked bar opposite the desk. Your lawyer offered you a drink, easier to take the bad news. Heart attacks were for middle-aged men. Cancer was called the woman's disease. People kicked off in their 40s and 50s. Nobody, including us, picked up all their own picnic trash. Most didn't even consider it. In my little burg, I was personally saved from small-town despair by comic books. Captain Marvel said, Shazam, to shake the world. And on TV, the comedy show of shows was Sid Caesar, Carl Reiner, and of course, Don Knotts. Irradiated my world. I devoured all the science fiction books by the great writers of the day. Isaac Asimov, Frederick Pohl, Philip K. Dick, Robert Heinlein, the always great Ray Bradbury. They speculated about the future. Of course, they were right about climate change. Who can miss on that? It's linear. You burn oil, you make smoke, you fill up the atmosphere. Add the cow farts. Go figure. <laughs> But none of them got to the thing that really happened. The computer! Where knowledge spills out sideways so the device in your hand covers the earth and everything it knows. 60s adventure seeking in the world, such as the Mekong River raft that crashed on the shore and I had to walk through the jungle for two days to a big town on the river, but not a single toilet in the whole town. Où est la toilette? La forêt. The guy pointed at the woods. And that's where I went and was satisfied. The only one who remembers all that is me, and I'm a blooming zombie. <laughs> I became a communist myself in 1968 in the movement against the Vietnam War, but really against the social norms. Of course, sages said, if you're not a communist when you're 20, there's something wrong with your heart. If you're still a communist at 40, there's something wrong with your head. <laughs> Four decades ago, I was the main lawyer for the New Age movement. That meant nonprofit 501c3 corporations, flattering my clients for their methods of enlightenment or healing, and then getting them divorced out of auto wrecks or out of jail for drunk driving, otherwise called the deuce in the legal trade for 25102 vehicle code. Of course, none of my clients ever did anything wrong. <laughs> I was in a profession where you have to dodge lies big as beach balls, and the better you distort what actually happened, the more you get paid. 
because I was a single, single practitioner, I did criminal law. But I burned out. Now I just say, hire me, we'll both go to jail. <laughs> I cringed, remember, the post-it notes to myself I put up on the bathroom mirror, affirmations of all kinds of self-improvement. I am now on time for meetings. I now remember what I ate. And of course, more money is now coming to me. All about creating a new personal reality. Futile. <laughs> I failed as a meditator, even though they said it wasn't possible to fail in meditation. First Hinduism, Buddhism, therapy, metaphysics. My therapeutic parade started early with, what, me worry? That fabulous and inspired spiritual advice from Alfred E. Newman on the cover of Mad Magazine. This came from a guy who actually had one eye higher than the other. <laughs> I failed to obey this wisdom and fell into the worry pit about it all. Not even just about me, the world, its thoughts and passions, beyond politics, even our current political disaster. It's existential anxiety. What to hold on to, if anything? Who helps who control who? Who's in charge? He be, she be, better show up soon. I'm pretty sure nobody's got the whole truth, and most people live quite happily without it. <laughs> Meanwhile, someone in mid-century built this simple home which houses my chair and swiveling ideas. Alas, I noticed that the cumulative effect of my lightning thoughts, computer notes, and swiveling around the world throwing staples is nothing. <laughs> Zero. I'm throwing out my hands to catch my own thoughts. But I love this solipsistic junction of ass, eyes, and mind where I accomplish nothing but flap. It's a desert flight over sand grains, resting on nothing. It makes me into a mirage, loose boundaries, go transpersonal. I would like to give away, first, all my memories from reading the New York Times, all about the world, reflected in little words that hang like Christmas ornaments on the great green tree of the mind. They'll be valuable one day. Not. <laughs> and 30 years of doing shows, readings, performance art in LA, making and taking social blisters, all gone, except in sad, nostalgic Facebook groups for forgotten clubs. Fringe Hollywood. In that 25 years as a guerrilla storefront lawyer, Pogo Pasado. <laughs> All goals except survival filtered out by reality and the tourniquet of time. I thought I'd missed the big coming attraction, global warming, <laughs> the big consequence of we as a civilization not taking out our trash, even though it was my generation in our country that put it over the top. But it's already happening. I'm not a prepper, survivalist. I'll hop along with my fellow frogs in the gradually warming pot. For company, also, there's nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, do we humans evolve through civilization, or does it all remain same old, same old human nature, like the Roman Empire? You know, they say Rome wasn't built in a day. They're wrong. It was built at night. <laughs> Jeez, I've been traveling without moving. Where'd I go? Albuquerque, my white chair, Rome. Moving around where I am the center of the world. All my stuff is precious marbles rolling around down there. You remember the lingo of the childhood game of marbles? Boulders, agates, cat's eyes, peewees. They all rolled under this white chair. I can still get down there and get back up. Let me collect them. Then maybe we'll go out and shoot a ring. Precious Marbles was written and performed by Doug Knott in November 2018. Hey, townies, it's that time again. I'm going to give you a writing prompt, and if you feel so inclined, take five minutes to keep your pen on the page or your fingers on the keys. Take more time if you like, but as usual, the most important thing is to withhold judgment and edits until after you type it up and save it as is. Today's prompt is twofold. 
Use one or the other. Use both. The best way to get somewhere is. The worst way to get somewhere is. Go for it, townies. You started out, as you mentioned, as a poet. What does telling a story like you do in class and for the podcast, what does that do for you that's different than poetry? Well, it is different. Mm -hmm. And um, it's because you have to play with the the direct um, word at a time understanding of the of the of the audience or the mm-hmm. reader, right? Uh, poetry has an echo space and a shadow, and a lot of the the music or the meaning of it is picked up on the draw, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in a certain way, and then kind of performance poetry or the current slam stuff is usually delivered at the rate people can absorb it. Mm-hmm. Um, poetry is a deliberately not necessarily obscure, but it's not. You know, it's poetry. It's like an art form of words. Each one has a tension against the other. Mm-hmm. Well, prose is what we're talking about here, mm-hmm. which has a much more, uh, it reflects the way the mind works uh, mm-hmm. on that way. I guess when I use the metaphor of the sides of the brain, mm-hmm. I forget which is which, but they, the uh, the story deals with an analytic mode. I, I used to think that uh, poetry comes out of song and prose comes out of the mind Mm-hmm. intellect more as a generalization. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you also spoke to earlier is that you had this epic career change from lawyer to poet performer. What prompted that? Well, the the urge of reality and nature. I mean, by that, my, my inner passion, so to speak. Well, one of those is an economic function and the other one is not. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in fact, uh, not to... Uh, poets teach school. That's 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 the that's the way it's made a living. You make a living, and uh, I didn't have that uh, as part of my uh, occupational arsenal. So, <laughs> so uh, it, it's a uh, it, you know poetry is just is 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 an art form for itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know I don't know any any uh, the, our current culture doesn't value poetry so much. There's mm-hmm. so many other kinds of media and, uh, you know, stimulation. However, mm-hmm. um, uh, poetry is, uh, uh, in its core, a relatively severe discipline, and mm-hmm. we poets are tremendous snobs, actually. Uh, <laughs> but we don't say it because we're so unimportant. <laughs> That's a delicious We're likely to be there, s- squashed on the, on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let me ask you this, then. Um, from where you are now, looking back, um, the abrupt shift from being a lawyer to a poet performer, was it worth it? Sure. Oh, yeah. Listen, uh, the underlying thing is you got to do what you got to do. And in my case, <laughs> it became very important. And I you know, was able to have uh, my particular business, the, being a lawyer, I didn't have a job. I had a job with every client I had individually, mm-hmm. but I could arrange my time, so to speak. Mm-hmm. to uh, show up at readings and rehearsals and things. But that's kind of unique. Mm-hmm. And for most of the time, I was single and this and that. I mean, social, but single. And so, <laughs> I mean, hardly an isolate. But it was, uh, uh, you know, I had, I had a, I could arrange my time at my job. I marvel at people that work like um, nine hours a day in a regular business, and then they can do it. I'm not a very disciplined person, so uh, I was glad that I was able to make money kind of on the fly. Mm-hmm. But don't tell my clients. I will not tell your clients, um, all of whom are innocent, apparently. That's right. None of my clients ever did anything <laughs> wrong. Well, me neither, so we're in good company. Um Any last parting words of wisdom that you would have for somebody looking to go back and reclaim their poetry or their voice or somebody looking to leap um, for the first time into self-expression? Any advice? Well, all right. Do it. Uh, Don't follow me. That's one. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) the the, the fact is the, the, the creative passion has to be has to be put in the front. And there's often some choices to be made. 
Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of people that do make a living don't make a big living, mm-hmm. so that may limit. Uh, you know, I, I personally had a good education, and it costs some money. And uh, gee whiz, uh, it's hard to find money in the art world. But I say, uh, follow the passion and let the work thing come up. Uh, mm-hmm. In my case, I'd gone to a, a graduate school and I got a, a degree, and so that set me up. But at that point, I didn't have any. I didn't have confidence or even uh, a, a desire to be uh, uh, an artist. It was funny. I, I came up with it when I was after after I was mm-hmm. thirty. Thank you so much for coming in today, honey. It was really great to see you. Well, it was great to see you. And uh, I'm seeing you right now in our booth, in our fun studio with Mr. Eros mm-hmm. and your daughter, Lily. Mm-hmm. So what a, what a fun scene. Well, thank you. Okay. But anyway, that's well, fun. Thank you. You're so welcome. I think we're, we don't need him for anything else, do we? I don't think so. Because we'll do the pickups so. with Katie? Yeah. Right? Hmm. I'm going to go goof around in a coffee house for a little go bit. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The poet's way. <laughs> <laughs> We are the Townies, and we are back every other Tuesday with original stories and a glimpse into the creative lives of the real people who wrote them. I am Kim Maxwell of Kim Maxwell Studio and the Townies, Inc., and we are in the business of connecting people one story at a time. The Townies podcast is produced by Lily Brown, Ken Eros, and me. With studio engineering and mixing by Eros Creative and Sound, the Townies theme song was written and performed by Rain Perry, recorded and mixed by Martin Young, and mastered by Mark Hallman at the Congress House. Thank you to today's storytellers and music contributors, to every single donor, listener, and supporter, to our board of directors, and to the people who inspire us and keep us moving forward every day. Molly Allison, Woody Brown, Cleo Charpentier, Patrick Lashley, Asa Larmanth, Olivia Lures, Amarisa Grant, April Theriault, Marissa Oots, and so many more. This podcast is made possible in part by a generous grant from the City of Ojai and the Ojai Arts Commission, and a shout out to our corporate sponsor, Robobank. You can find out more about us and today's storytellers at thetowniespodcast.org. Thank you for listening. Do you want me to play it back so you can hear exactly what she said? Um... I don't think so, because I, I, I think we're leaving that behind. We're leaving that, vision, that version behind. I'm coming from a place of yes. <laughs> 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 so I'm going to do it anyway. I think that's going to be my answer to everything that somebody says no to me. I'll be like, I think I'm coming from a place of yes. <laughs>